Hello everyone, my name is Georgia Took, half of the Jiggle and Juice Collective, and you're listening to another Notes On segment. You can read the full text and see pics on our website at jiggleandjuicecollective.com, or you can listen to me here. Uh, so without further ado, let's jump into my notes on the imitation game at the Vancouver Art Gallery. During my Vancouver day trip I did at the end of April, I saw four exhibitions in one day. Two at the Vancouver Art Gallery and two at the Contemporary Art Gallery. The first one I saw and wrote about was the Yoko Ono Growing Freedom Show, which occupied the first floor of the Vancouver Art Gallery. And the second show, which I'll be giving my notes on now, was located on the second floor. When I arrived on the landing of the staircase, I was greeted by a friendly gallery attendant. He excitedly guided me over to this massive projection that had several floating words on the wall, like games, urban design, pop culture, etc., all connected by lines. The gallery attendant told me to hold my hand out, palm down, hovering over this sensor, which I now controlled what was happening on the screen just by moving my hand in midair. As I rolled over each word, it expanded and told me a few different examples of how artificial intelligence technology was being incorporated into basically every facet of our lives. This felt like an incredible way to start an exhibition on AI. This show was called The Imitation Game, Visual Culture in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. My interest was immediately piqued because I love art that explores life in the digital age. My absolute favorite exhibition ever was called Digital Citizen, The Precarious Subject at the Baltic in Newcastle, and this is all linked in the text if you're interested. However, it quickly dwindled in the first quarter of the show. It began with a detailed history of AI, which was very text-heavy and felt more museum-like than art gallery. Interspersed in there were monitors with excerpts of old movies that talked about a hypothetical AI. I had heard of some of these movies before, but had never seen them and honestly couldn't be arsed to watch them now. I didn't think it was going to deepen my understanding in any meaningful way, so I breezed past the first bit. Just as I was growing weary of the museum portion, I peeked my head into a darkened room where there was this approximately 15 foot by 15 foot by about 2 feet tall trapezoidal plinth in the middle of the room. Resting on top was an unstretched canvas with ultramarine blue paint strokes gesturally flowing over it. Lastly, what appeared to be the cause of the paint strokes, 10 hemisphere-shaped robots sitting quietly awaiting instruction. On the back wall was a massive projection playing a video that appeared to be an aerial shot of the work I was now standing in front of. However, it was an action. The artist and her swarm of robots collaboratively working on the painting together. On the left and right walls were paintings of various sizes that the artist, Su Gwen Chung, and her robots had made together. What I found most intriguing were the two videos on the walls next to the door as you entered the space, which showed Chung's process a little bit more in depth. Chung collects surveillance footage of public spaces. The data from this footage can be distilled down through algorithms to find out the velocity, direction, density, and dwell time of how people are moving through various spaces. It then takes this information and creates movement patterns for Chung's robots to paint. I really appreciate a room like this that contains all the relevant info in a visual way for a viewer to understand the work. 
I think each part of Su Gwen Chung's installation was equally important. The next section I meandered around, pausing at different works to look and read their texts. Nothing really jumped out at me until I finally walked counterclockwise around the perimeter of the gallery space, leaving me to look at the back wall. I saw two screens. The one on the left was a smaller, square-shaped screen that looked like live feed security, similar to something you might see when you walk into a drugstore or department store, seeing yourself mirrored as you walk on and off the screen, which reminds you that you are being watched. The screen on the right side was a vertical monitor, which showed a red squiggly line with dots that rippled out, placed sporadically along the line. It took me a second to realize how these two screens connected, but then I saw as I moved towards the one on the left, the red line moved too. I was being tracked. I could see exactly how I had moved through the room. If I stood in one spot for more than a couple seconds, a dot would appear. The longer I stood there, another circle would outline that dot, and then another, and then another, until I walked again and the line would follow me. I don't know why, but I found this so fascinating and entertaining. When I read the gallery text, they mentioned something called preference engines, which is a term I hadn't heard of before, but is something that we are all very familiar with by now. It's software that monitors our online activity, so it can advertise us products, services, information, all based on what we search, click on, the articles we read, the music we listen to, etc., etc. According to the text, galleries have, for the most part, been reluctant to use software like this to collect data on its visitors, to find out what they spend time on and how they move through the gallery. The VAG commissioned Creepers to do exactly that. They mentioned that they did not record or collect any of the data, but merely showed what it could do. I'm so curious as to why more galleries don't use this software. I would be morbidly fascinated to look at how people move through a space, how long they spend on a piece, what they take time to read, and what they breeze past. It's only now, after writing about this exhibition, that I put together the similarities between my experiences of Su Gwen Chung's collaborative robot paintings and the Creepers piece I was just talking about. There was a bunch of works in between the two installations. I had originally wrote about the works in the order that I saw them, but now that I'm editing, I'm going to place them together. The red line that displayed my travel and dwell time in the space that I was being tracked in is exactly the data that Chung's robots are processing and turning into painted lines. I just thought this was a fun realization that I had while I was writing and reflecting and wanted to point it out. Anyways, I'm going to try and rattle off a couple more works that stood out to me so we're not reading this forever. That's the problem with large galleries, is there's so much to take in. So one of my immediate favorites, a monitor with a video of movies with pre and post CGI. And I honestly just can't get enough of that. I am so fascinated by CGI and the uncanny valley. While at the exhibition in Newcastle that I mentioned earlier, I saw this work, Goodbye Uncanny Valley, which I've linked in the text, by Alan Warburton, um, which is available on Vimeo, and I would highly recommend checking it out if you're interested in that kind of stuff. I turned the corner and came across a work that I had just recently seen an art history TikTok talking about. It's always exciting to see something you saw online IRL. Bina48 is one of the world's most advanced social robots. Conversations with Bina48 
by artist Stephanie Dinkins is a series of videos recording Dinkins asking questions to BDF48. The work examines how a human and a robot can build a relationship over time, discussing things like race, family, faith, robot, civil rights, loneliness, knowledge, and consciousness. What I find so fascinating about this project was how we hold the belief that tech is neutral, idealistic, and objective, when in reality, AI is coded and programmed by humans, which of course embed their beliefs and biases whether they intend to or not. These conversations shed light to that core programming and poke holes in the idealistic idea of unbiased programming. There's no such thing. This is excellently illustrated by the Algorithmic Justice League. The AJL was formed in 2016 by Joy Bulamwani, a computer scientist and digital activist. The exhibition text stated that the AJL is a leading cultural movement towards equitable and accountable AI. Beside the text was a TV monitor showing a short video called The Coded Gaze, Unmasking Algorithmic Bias, where Bulamwani described a personal experience she had when she started her time at MIT. She started working with computer vision or facial recognition and was confused when it wasn't registering her face. It wasn't until she put on a white mask that the software recognized her. I thought about my own experience with facial recognition software, which upon first thought was just how I get into my phone. But then I wondered, where else is this being used? In the video, they use examples of facial recognition software for apartment building security or CCT security cameras that have falsely accused BIPOC people with crimes that they didn't commit because the facial recognition didn't register the correct darker features. These coded biases can have huge, life-threatening implications for marginalized people. What this film highlighted is how the people who create and roll out these softwares are a small group of typically white males. And whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, AI is impacting our lives and that coding is politically charged and riddled with bias. The last room I went into was a large, low-lit room with several massive glowing lightbox photographs, TV monitors, and a grid of postcard-sized prints. This was a collection from a London-based artist named Scott Eaton. I feel like at this point in the gallery, I was tired and hungry and genuinely thought about walking through diagonally to the other door. But then I saw this video that completely made me stop in my tracks. It looked like one of those videos where it's a close shot of someone squeezing food coloring into water and you can see it balloon out, expand, and mix with the water. But instead of food coloring, it was a fleshy morphing of human bodies. I was transfixed by this. It was like the human bodies were used as a digital material or digital paint. Now that the artist's work had thoroughly captured my attention, I slowly began to make my way around the room. The next piece I saw, I absolutely fell in love with. It was called Humanity, Fall of the Damned, 2019. It was a large-scale lightbox photograph that towered over me. It had the same feel as the other piece, but a still image this time instead of a video. It felt biblical, or maybe mythical would have been a better word for it. Like all these bodies were floating up to the heavens or falling down into hell, or maybe even just suspended between the two worlds. 
It reminded me of this children's book my mom used to read me and my brothers when we were kids about this caterpillar that began to climb this tall pillar covered in other caterpillars, all squishing, stepping over, and crushing each other, trying to reach the top, even though no one knew what was up there. When you moved closer to the piece, you could see so many incredible details of arms hanging onto legs, fingers clutching hips and waist, faces buried into bends and crooks of another's body. I think this might have been my favorite piece in the gallery. The last work I saw was called Caffeinated Diversions, 2018 to 2019. There was a large grid of postcard-sized prints. Each column had two of the same print side by side, one that was a gray two-dimensional sketch with a, of a cartoonish-looking body, and one that was a fleshy 3D version of that sketch. This was the point where I checked the exhibition text to find out how Scott Eaton was making these. And it turns out he was working with what's called an AI neural network. Eaton fed this neural network over 25,000 photographs of staged, well-lit human bodies and trained it to then only recognize and produce new images based on human bodies. These sketches I mentioned illustrate that really well. Whatever design Eaton gives the body's neural network, it will create that design or sketch using only bodies. Oh my god, we finally made it out. The Vancouver Art Gallery is freaking massive, and I always forget that when I'm planning an art trip and want to hit multiple galleries in a day. Just like I always forget how long it takes me to travel to and fro Vic to Van and back to Vic again. As I ruminated on my day trip during my ferry ride home, I calculated that I spent a total of less than four hours in Vancouver proper and seven and a half hours of just traveling. Note to self, spread out my time in Vancouver, day trips are a little much, so I can spend more time in galleries without feeling tired and rushed. But overall, I'm glad I did it because seeing art when you're grumpy is better than seeing no art at all, I guess. Thank you so much for reading or for listening. This show is on until October 23rd, 2022. So if you're in Vancouver before then, I highly recommend checking it out. And if you're going to look up any of the work I talked about, look at the Algorithmic Justice League and the activist work they are doing and how you can get involved. Thanks so much. We will see you next time.